Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself, and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect those who come to worship. For otherwise would they, have, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers would have been purified once and for all, and so have no further consci- consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. So this is the point that he goes to, another angle. So he basically says, if Jesus is the eternal God, then his death is eternal perfecter. Therefore, you have eternally been saved. Therefore, there is no need for him to die over and over again. But now he comes at a different angle and says this, if you think the animals really could truly save you, then why do you have to keep doing them over and over and over and over again? Why do you have to keep sacrificing over and over again? So the first point that he makes is this, in verse 2 and 3, the sacrifices were first a reminder of how horrific your sin is. These sacrifices, sorry, verse 3, but these sacrifices, there were reminders of sins year after year after year. If you've ever killed a deer or an animal while hunting and cleaned it, it is a bloody, nasty, messy, violent experience. Okay, Especially if it's like, if you're an animal lover. <laughs> Killing an animal, I mean, I mean, I know hunters who even mourn the loss of a deer, but they do it because... They're going to use the animal and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the American Indians mourn the loss of animals, but they need the animals to stay alive. And farmers mourn. You get if you ever been to um, which is um, I just went blank. That farm thing where kids can raise animals and put them on display. 4-H. Yeah, those kids get attached to those animals, and then you have to take them off to the slaughter. Okay. The reality is, you slice the throat of an animal and kill it and bleed it out. It is a messy, violent, horrific, and sticky experience. Part of the reason that God commanded the animal sacrifices is because this is a creature that He loved and He created, and it's dying because you're a sinner. You're an evil, horrible, wretched, rebellious sinner. And this thing has to die because of you. And every single time you put your hands on it and you slice that throat and that blood goes everywhere and it squirms and you get to wash the life drain out of it as it fights for it desperately, you're reminded that this is what your sin does. It is very easy to be a sinner surrounded by a bunch of sinners and rationalize our sin. And think, well, yeah, everybody kind of lies. Everybody kind of like stretches the truth. Everybody is selfish. Everybody says really cruel, frustrating things to their family members when they get tired and hungry. And at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. But if this thing is horrifically, violently being slaughtered by your own hand because of your sins, it's a constant reminder. This is what your sin does to people's lives. This is what should be happening to you. That lamb is you. And so part of the sacrificial system is Thank God we're not longer under it, but at the same time, we're missing out on a visual demonstration that might help keep us from rationalizing sin so much. I'm not saying we should go back to it, but I'm saying 
that God commanded the sacrificial system, therefore it was good. It did serve a good lesson. That we thank God we have Jesus Christ, but unfortunately we miss out on a visual example. However, at the same time, eventually that example becomes old and it just becomes repetitive and it didn't do anything for them because they kept rebelling anyways. So that's the problem with visual examples. The painting on the wall becomes less noticeable in your house after a while. And so it doesn't mean it would solve our sin problem. But this is the idea. The second thing that the sacrifices teach you is that there is a way back to God. That there is a way back to God. The fact that he's allowing you to sacrifice an animal so that your sins can be temporarily covered until the better sacrifice comes is that he's teaching that there is a way back to God. And then the third thing is that these both point towards Jesus, that he's going to have to die a horrible, violent, horrific death for your sins, which makes it even worse because he's a human and he's God. And two, he's going to be the ultimate access and way back to God. So here's the point. If they really, truly atone for your sins, why did you have to keep doing them over and over and over again? And he makes the point this. It goes a double route. The fact that you had to keep sacrificing animals means that they weren't truly covering your sins. Therefore, if Christ died one time, he truly has covered your sins. That's the conclusion of the matter. So you see how everything in the law was pointing to Christ. Everything. The lamb. The repetitive nature was all pointing to Christ. It's like God was giving you 50 million Polaroid pictures, and when you put them all together, they mosaic paint a picture of Christ. One picture was not enough to paint Christ. But when you lay, have you ever seen the, like, got really big in the 90s, where they take all these photographs, and they put all the photographs together, and they would make up a bigger mosaic picture of a bigger picture. That's what God is doing. That was the whole point of the law. That every little detail in the law was a snapshot of Christ. And when you put them all together, you had the full picture of who Christ was. Therefore, you're without excuse when that picture steps on the scene. If you've got that thing hanging in your wall because you've tied it to your forehead and bound it to your doorpost and you're teaching your children when they lie down and when they wake up and you're walking on the path, if you live and breathe the Word of God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, then you should recognize Him when He shows up on the scene. And that's what Jesus said. If you knew the Father, you would know me. Because the picture is hanging in your wall if you know God. And I match the picture. And so that's what he's painting here, is this picture. But those sacrifices, verse 3, reminder of sins. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Do you really think that your sin is not that bad in the face of a righteous God that an animal can take care of it? That's an insult towards God. Oh, my rebellion and sin is not really that bad. One lamb can take care of everything. It takes the death of the living God Almighty. Now remember, the death on the cross, as much as Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, was a good visual demonstration, and I think I've already mentioned that was child's play compared to what really truly happened, that was not where the true suffering was. The true suffering was when the almighty, living, eternal God, who is God, was separated from God. I have no idea how to even comprehend that fact. That's where the true death was. Because death is separation. And when Christ was separated from the Father, and the Father could not look on 
himself get the second member of the Trinity, however that works. That's where the true hell was what Christ experienced for your sake. And you think the blood of an animal is sufficient? That's how horribly evil our sin is. Does it require the Trinity to be separated from itself? For how long? I don't know. No more than three days. Now he quotes Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, in order to reemphasize his point. So when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepare for me. Whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you look you took no delight in. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written for me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. Sacrifices and offering is not what God really required. Even Samuel says this. When Saul is commanded to kill all the animals and kill the, the king Agag, and he doesn't do it, he kills all the Amalekites except for Agag and a couple of the animals. And Samuel says, you didn't obey God. And he says, yes, I did obey God. You see, I killed everybody except for the king and the animals. It's like, what? And Samuel's like, what's wrong with you? You did not kill everybody like God said. Oh, yes, I did kill everybody. But see, we're going to sacrifice the animals to God. That makes everything okay. Basically, because I'm going to sacrifice, that makes all my sins okay. And Samuel's response is, does God want rituals? What he wants is a heart that obeys God and desires God. And that's what Psalms is saying. I think it's in Psalm 50 or 51 or 52, one of those three that says that same thing as well. God doesn't really require ritual. Ritual cannot save you. Praying in a certain words with a certain phrase in a certain prayer corner is not going to get your prayers answered. Ritual cannot save you. Ritual is not a relationship. Ritual is a way to help us become intentional about what's in our heart. We're people who get really distracted and really busy really easily. And there's a lot of things that are up here that we don't really put into action. And a ritual helps you make thoughts and heart desires more physical and tangible. Therefore, they become more real and concrete to us because we are physical, visual creatures. This is why Abraham says, I believe that you will make a promise, you will keep your promise, but I need something to hold on to. And God says, go get those animals and cut them in half. Abraham, he's like, I believe you. And before they even sacrifice the animals, God says, Abraham believed and he counted to him as righteousness. Then they did the ritual. But the ritual was just to help Abraham take something that was rattling up there in a conceptual, abstract way and help him make it more concrete and visual so that he can hang his hat on, so to speak. Does that kind of make sense? That's the purpose of visuals. That's why we have a symbol of the cross in the church. That's why we make, that's why Jesus told parables. This is why we tell stories. This is why we cut out pictures and put them on flannel graph boards. This is why we do these things. It's not that those things save us. They just help us grasp these concepts better. And that's why this is heavy, 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 heavy stuff. And that's why God gave us a first testament of the wilderness generation and Abraham to help visualize these difficult theological concepts. And so this is what God is saying. He does not desire the sacrifices and the rituals in themselves. 
The sacrifices and the rituals were just to help you physically put into action what was already truly in your heart. And if it wasn't in your heart, you're just going through the motions. So if you think the blood of an animal really truly saves you, then you've put your salvation in the ritual. And the ritual cannot save you. Only faith in Christ. The real sacrifice, not a ritual, but a real sacrifice. And this is the whole point. And he goes to unpack it. Now here, when he quotes Psalm, the original Psalm says, An ear you have bored out for me. LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it says, A body you have prepared for me. Now, in the original context of Psalm 40, the idea is, Here I am, God, use me, an ear you have bored out for me. And it's in the context of, we are deaf people. Isaiah often says, let whom has eyes see and let him who has ears hear. And the idea is the one who truly wants to know God will hear and see. The one who just rather just listen to the story like Esau, but then go on and do his own thing. And so he can say, check, check, I've heard this story, but I really just want to do what I want to do. They're, they're blind and their, eyes are, their ears are filled with wax. And if you really want to hear God, your ear has to be bored out. The, axe has, the wax has to be carved out of your ear so you can really truly hear God and truly respond. And the idea is, here I am, God. I have an ear that has been bored out for you. I am ready to hear and understand and put into action. So the Septuagint comes along and says, a body you have prepared for me. And you're like, where did you get ear and body? Well, maybe that idea of uh, um, where you refer to one thing to refer to the whole. So if I say, well, it's that projector up there is nothing but nuts and bolts. Well, that projector is more than nuts and bolts. It's got microchips and circuits and plastic and electrical wires and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, refer, I'm using two things to refer to the whole port because nobody wants to li, li, sit here and listen to me list off everything that's in a projector. Well, I'm nothing but flesh and bone. Well, or you're also blood. You're also nervous system. You're also chemicals. But you're, you're referring... So it could be that the LXX or the Septuagint takes it as if your ear is bored out and listening to God, then you're ready for your whole body to be used by God. Your whole life to be used by God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so the, the, the literalness is an area of bored out for me. But the deeper interpretation is if you're hearing and truly responding, then your body and your life is also ready for God to be used. So he uses that deeper, logical conclusion of your ear being open to God to say, Christ offered his whole body as a sacrifice. He listened. Remember, he cried out to God, and and he listened to God. And by listening to God, it led to the logical conclusion of him giving his entire life to God. And that entire life was offered up for us. And so therefore, Psalms... Christ is the ultimate living out of Psalms 40. Does that kind of make sense? So, sacrifice is offering you do not desire, but a body. 
It's not the ritual that you desire God. It was the body completely committed to God. God doesn't want your rituals. He wants your heart. He doesn't say, go out and do your rituals. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is holy and pleasing to God as your spiritual act of worship. This is what he's saying. This is what he wants. And God in Christ is the ultimate demonstration of this. Then I said, here I am. I have come and has written me the scroll of the book, do your will. So he unpacks the theology of this. When he says above, sacrifice and offerings, and whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor do you take delight in them, which are offered according to law. The law required sacrifices, yet that's not what Christ, God, takes delight in. So therefore he does not take delight in the rituals of the law. Then he says, here I am, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first to establish the second by his body. This is what he's saying. By his will we have been made holy through the offering of his body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Psalms says this. God does not require ritual. He requires a body completely given over to God. An entire life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength sacrifices and rituals is what the law required. Therefore, if God doesn't desire ritual, He does not desire the ultimate things that the law required. What He desires is a body completely given over to God. The only person who completely gave over His body 100% in total obedience to God is Jesus. And now that body lives in you, so to speak, and now you've been made holy. So here's another way the law has been abolished. See, he just keeps coming at different angles. Another way is the Psalms literally says, God doesn't want ritual, he wants a body. The law requires ritual, but did not offer a life that could truly obey the law. But Christ did not need ritual because he truly offered a perfect life that could meet the requirement of the law. So he gave God what he really wanted. A completely obedient life. Therefore, why do you need the law anymore? Because we now we actually have what God wants. And that's a completely obedient life. And now that that life is in you, now you can present your body as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. Make sense? He just keeps coming at it at different angles. Different angles. So hopefully by the end you'll realize we're not under the law. If you haven't figured that one out yet. Some of us are thinking like, okay, I think we could have stopped back in chapter 8, right? But remember, he's talking to Jews who need convince. And we need to understand it, one, so we can truly appreciate how amazing the law was. That in so many different ways that it did point to Christ. Two, we can truly appreciate how amazing it is that we have what we have that they did not have. Three, it will help you understand how horrible of a sinner that you really truly are, so you'll cling to Christ even more. And four, it will help you better communicate this to people today who still think that they're under the law, whether Jew or Christian, or the Muslim, or the Mormon, or the Jehovah's Sometimes we understand these things not for ourselves, but for the other people out there who need this understanding. You may think, well, I don't need this explained to me. But now that you know this, People may be brought into your life. 
I can't tell you how many times my students say, I've never met a Jehovah Witness. I've never met a Mormon. I've never known a Hindu. And I'm like, just wait. Because every year I teach these subjects, the next thing I know, it's like within a couple of months, people are saying, oh my gosh, I just met a Jehovah Witness over here. I found out my co-worker is a Jehovah Witness. I just, my roommate's a Hindu. Because once you begin to learn things of God's Word, God begins to bring those people into your life that need to hear those truths. And He cannot bring those people into your life if you don't know the truth to communicate them. And the more of God's truth that you understand, whether you think you need it or not in your life, maybe you don't struggle with alcoholism, but maybe you need to understand how Christ answers that because there are people who do struggle and need to bring in your life. Maybe you don't understand, struggle with that theology. You don't struggle with being tempted into Satanism or that kind of stuff. But your roommate, your next-door neighbor one day will. And you need to know how to communicate Christ better than that. And so there's so many different reasons why, yes, because not every illustration works with us. There's so many times I'm like, oh yeah, I don't understand that. You need to try another. People are like, well, it's kind of like baseball. Well, it's kind of like the movies. And eventually one is like, oh, okay, I get that. And that's what the author is doing. Because the more tools you have in your toolbox the better you can build the life of Christ in somebody. Verse 9, then he says, Here I am, I have come to your will. He does away with the first to establish the second. By his will, we have been made holy through the offering of his body, Jesus Christ, once and for all. Verse 11, And every priest stands day after day, serving the offering, the same sacrifices again and again, sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down the right hand of God, where he is now waiting until his enemies are made a footstool at his feet. That's Psalm 110. He comes back to that again. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who, have, who are made holy. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after saying, This is the covenant I will establish with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will inscribe them on their minds. Then he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no longer. So he quotes Jeremiah 31 again. This is why Jeremiah really truly can be fulfilled. That in that day, the Holy Spirit will truly enter into you. And the law will be written on your heart. And I will remember your sins no more. Because Christ is the only life that actually meant the requirements of God. Your rituals cannot, but Christ could. And now that the law has been met, now the blessings of the law, the Holy Spirit, the cleansing of sin, and the true eternal forgiveness of sins can be dealt out in us. Because it's not ritual. It's a perfect righteous life. And only the righteous go to heaven. And only Christ is righteous. Therefore, the only way we can be made righteous is by faith. Because none of us can meet the requirements of ritual. And ritual is not even what God requires or desires. Does that make sense? Now, we have rituals, too. We have certain ways that we need to dress when we go into church, certain translations we have to use, certain ways that we pray, certain times that you have to pray of the day. 
Now, praying before you eat is great, but it's not like you have to. I remember my professor telling this story once where his wife is like a semi-pro golfer. And they were really struggling financially. And they were really having a hard time paying the bills. And if she won this tournament, they would, she would win a lot of money. And it would help. But you just need everything they need to pay some of the bills that month. And so he's praying and praying and praying and praying. And she gets a whole one. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is it. And there's only like a few more holes left. And he prays and prays and prays and prays. And she gets another hole in one. He begins to think the prayer's working. And then by the third or fourth hole, she gets another one. And it's by the fourth hole, or third or fourth, I forget what it was, that he begins to realize that he finds himself praying the exact same words that he did. He's standing in the exact same position and facing the same way and holding his hands the same way. And he began to realize that he was appealing to ritual rather than really connecting to God. Not that he wasn't, but there was a ritual there. It's like Moses. God told him to strike the rock. And he did, and water came. But then God told him to speak to the rock the second time. And one of the sins, one of the reasons God got angry at Moses is because he appealed to ritual rather than obeying the word of God. He did what worked last time rather than what God was speaking. And so for him it was ritual. And we do this, even though we know we're not under the law, even though we didn't grow up in that Jewish background, even though we don't do these rituals, and even though we're pat ourselves on the back that we threw so many Catholic rituals out the window, which was not exactly a good thing, we do appeal to our own little rituals. And we've got a lot of, that's not how we do things here. Or that's the way our family. And we need to be careful. I'm not saying you think yeah, that automatically means that you think that that's making you pleasing before God. But it might be. And the more you say that's not the way we do things, maybe be more and more that you actually think that's what makes you right before God. So that's, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's one of those things that search me, O oh God, and know my heart and test me. So don't think we're without rituals in our free laissez-faire Protestant churches. Because we're not. We've just come up with our own rituals. And a lot of our rituals just tend to be a little bit more of our follow-our-own-heart rituals rather than scriptural rituals. And this is what he's making the point. It's obedience and faith given to God, not rituals and sacrifices. Sometimes we also say, but I sacrifice so much for you, God. Shouldn't I get... Well, you should have sacrificed to God because you love him. And you love others. Not because you're hoping for a return. We've got to be, we've got to watch those phrases. Verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. When sins are truly forgiven, you don't need a sacrificial system anymore. 